podcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, through iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm, and as usual, here on YouTube, if you're watching, please click that subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. Third part on the great tradition, and what I hope to do today is get through a couple of Roman numerals in my outline. Um, again, you know, this is something that I'm going through uh, with the with Victory Baptist Church. We're doing it once a week there, and so uh, did the first session last Wednesday. We'll do a second session tomorrow, as I'm recording this, tomorrow's Wednesday, um, and then however long it takes us to get to the end. I think that it'll be about three parts by the time it's all said and done, maybe four um, depending on how things go right now and how fast, uh, how, how thorough and fast I can make it through these two Roman numerals in the outline, um, we may, uh, wrap up this little, uh, this little video series today. Um, so the first thing I want to do, so just, just by way of a quick review, we looked at the apostolic tradition last time we looked at, or I called it the great tradition of the apostles, um, comes from texts like 2 Thessalonians 2.15. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, or remember, says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, paradosis, paradosis in this case. Um, and we talked about how, you know, that term could technically be translated, you know, in an earlier part. I think the first part we talked about the viability of the English translation, whether or not it was it was a valid translation to tradition from paradosis, and uh, what Paul or how Paul is using the term paradosis here just is what we mean by the English term tradition. Um, and so, what I want to do here is is just kind of continuing on uh, looking at Second Thessalonians two fifteen. I want to look at where Paul toward the end of the verse, so the B portion of the verse. So he says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. We talked about how stand fast and hold. The traditions are two imperatives, two commandments. Stand fast, like persevere, hold fast, and hold. Cling to, arrest the traditions which you were taught. And then Paul says, whether by word or our tradition. And by word there, in this context, it is the term logos, but in this context, it means like a, a verbal transmission or a verbal or, or um, uh, oracular uh, communication uh, in contrast to that which has been written in the first epistle delivered to the Thessalonians, um, first Thessalonians. What, now, what I want to do here is I want to distinguish the historical... Protestant understanding, and when I say Protestant, I don't mean to suggest, I, I know we get tied up in conversations concerning history, but when I say Protestant, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one of those guys that oversimplifies, I, I, I'm not one for, I'm guilty of doing this, but I, I don't like the oversimplification of history, suggesting, suggesting, of course, that, you know, something brand new came about at the time of the at the time of the reformation. So when I use protestant don't hear me saying this view of scripture, this view of tradition wasn't around before the 16th century. Um but one of the things that was recovered or um more widely published than it had been previously 
for a very long time was a, a view of tradition. There is a Protestant view of tradition that is distinct from Roman Catholicism's view of it. And so when we're talking about the great tradition, the great tradition can be defined broadly, it can be defined narrowly, it can talk about, um, you know, the assumptions that Scripture makes along with explicit and necessarily inferred scriptural data. It can talk about the transmission of that data throughout the ages. So there's a lot of things included in the great tradition. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, what is the ground or the source of our tradition, from a Protestant understanding, the source is the written word of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, that's like the fountainhead of tradition in terms of the articles of faith, what to be believed on by Christians. Um, that constitutes the quote-unquote Christian tradition. So we're going we're gonna to make some distinctions here. Hopefully they'll be helpful. I, I hope I can uh, get around to interacting with some Herman Bovink here in volume one of the pro, his prolegomena in his four-volume Reformed Dogmatics. Um, so Roman numeral th three in my outline. So we're moving now on, uh, on from the, the apostolic tradition or the great tradition of the apostles. We're moving now to the topic of the word and epistle, which we see at the end of 2 Thessalonians 2.15. What does that mean? The word and the epistle. Now, as someone who identifies with the Protestant doctrinal understanding, this both word and epistle are both scripture. They are both scripture. And the word in this context are is the scriptures orally presented in the early church. So you read someone like Thomas Manton, he talks about how, you know, in the early church, obviously prior to the canonization and the completion of the New Testament, there was an oral teaching of the apostles. Um, so the apostles would go from church to church and teach. They're Apostolic associates would go from church to church and teach and deliver essentially what what amounted to God-breathed word. Um, it was the same in substance with the whole of what we now have in writing called the New Testament. Well, in the first century, second century, third century, not every church had that. So there was an, a, a dependence on oral transmission of New Testament data that we do not have to struggle with so much now because of the abundance of uh, translations in our vulgar tongue, um, of course, the close of the New Testament canon, and so forth. So when, we're, when, when Paul's talking about the word here, he's not talking about a, an oral tradition that is set beside and runs parallel with scriptural data, as if you can learn something from the oral tradition that you can't ultimately learn from scripture. Does that make sense? So, so for Rome, the oral tradition contains things that you cannot know from Scripture, per se. Um, or if you could, in theory, know it, you are not qualified to know it. The only people qualified to know it would be the ones who are in charge of interpreting the Scriptures, which is ultimately the buck stops at the magisterium. So, when the Protestants talk about tradition and we're talking about 
tradition, the, the apostolic tradition as it's transmitted down throughout the ages. We're not talking about something that runs, that concurs with Scripture, but is something other than formally what's contained in the Scriptures. Okay, so the word in this context, it doesn't, it doesn't represent, as Rome would interpret 2 Thessalonians 2.15, it doesn't represent a, a co-equal um, source of knowledge, per se, right? This is just scriptural data communicated orally in the first century, in large part by necessity, because there was not a closed New Testament canon that you could go to Mardell's and buy and and read it all, right? You couldn't rely on a fully formed, fully written New Testament canon in the first century. So obviously Paul's talking about the orally presented word of God um, as it uh, as it distinguishes from the epistle or the written word here. But now that the apostles are gone, we're not receiving any new revelation, and we have the whole of the New Testament canon completed, there is no oral transmission of, um, of articles of faith or things which much, must be believed by those within the pale of the church that cannot be found in Scripture, okay? So the word in this context, the word, quote-unquote, logos, in this context is the Scriptures orally presented in the early church because prior to the close of the canon, Scripture would have been delivered in more than one medium, i.e. by word or letter, right? In the apostolic era, it was necessary that Scripture took a form other than writing since the New Testament had not yet been completed, right? Okay. Um, in our day, what is said from pulpits, what is said within classrooms, those things may be considered biblical and thus carry the weight of Scripture, right? If, if a pastor stands at the pulpit and basically repeats in his own words, but same in substance what Scripture teaches, well, then his words bind the consciences of the congregation, because, not because of him, but because he is accurately setting forth the Word of God, and the Word of God is binding upon the conscience, okay? So when we're talking about things that are preached uh, upon the source of Scripture, or from the ultimate source, which is Scripture, um, from the pulpits, in the classrooms. Um, those things are biblical and, and thus carry the weight of scriptural authority, but those things, what's said from the pulpit or what's said within the classroom, uh, unless you're talking about curriculum, when, you, when you're talking about systematic theology, which deals with revealed theology mostly, unless you're talking about prolegomena, where you're looking at natural theology and so on and so forth. When you're talking about specially revealed theology, uh, that is the articles of faith which can come through none other than Scripture, then what's taught concerning those subjects or which, what's preached from that source, Scripture, uh, can be biblical and thus carry the weight of scriptural authority, but those things the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, those things are not sourced from anything other than the scriptures, ultimately. Yes, teachers and pastors go to men like John Gill and Herman Bovink and um, uh, Thomas Manton and Charles Spurgeon and so on and so forth for help in rightly interpreting and dividing the word of God, right? Because we can't, we can't be islands unto ourselves, 
Um, Calvin talks about this when he's talking about the uh, continued applicability of conciliar theology and the legitimacy of councils, where corporate interpretation of God's word carries more weight than uh, a person's individualist interpretation while they're sitting in their closet or their study and so on. Corporate interpretation, theology, and biblical interpretation done within the context of the corporate community always carries more weight than the individual's interpretation. So when we're looking at creeds, when we're looking at confessions, when we're looking at commentaries, those things are not representing to us doctrine that cannot be found in the scriptures, right? So when we take like the Second London Confession, for example, and we say that this is uh, representational of my particular, the, the particular Baptist tradition with which I identify, right? We're not saying that that particular Baptist tradition is a parallel transmitted tradition alongside scripture. We're saying that this is the interpretive, interpretative, interpretive tradition that we understand to be the most accurate interpretation of God's holy word. So the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Westminster Standards, uh, the Three Forms of Unity, the Savoy Declaration, this, and so on and so forth, those things are sourced from the scriptures, right? So nobody's claim, nobody wants to take the Second London or the 1689, nobody wants to take the Westminster and say, this is an authority, this is a, this is a, this represents a tradition that comes parallel to the scriptures that we must go to to get things that we cannot otherwise find in Scripture. Nobody's saying that about their respective confessional traditions, right? So as a, as a Second London 1689 guy, uh, the 1689 is developed out of the Scriptures. It grows out of special revelation, right? It's developed from the foundation of Holy Scripture. It doesn't represent a tradition, anything uh, that, that's besides or parallel to or other than that which can be found in Scripture. We're just saying that the Second London, as far as we know, as far as we can tell, um, and as far as we're able to tell, is the best summary and the best setting forth of the whole counsel of God on those 32 key points, 32 key chapters that we know of and are thus reflective of an accurate representation or interpretation of God's holy word. Um, creeds are the same. The Nicene Creed would not exist if scripture did not exist, right? And that automatically sets the Nicene Creed in subjugation to the text of scripture. The same with the, the Apostles' Creed. But, and nobody, so nobody is claiming that these creeds are equal to Scripture or something other than Scripture, which provides us with information that we could not otherwise, that, that is not otherwise founded on what is revealed through the Bible, through the Holy Scriptures. The creeds are developed on the basis of the articles of faith that are revealed to us in the Scriptures. All right, so the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, yeah, when we're talking about how we've believed over the centuries. You know, Bobbing says something here that would that I think would get some some quote unquote reform biblicists upset when he says that, you know, essentially um, the reformed tradition 
uh, he, what's the language that he used? Continued to stand on the broad Christian foundation of the Apostles' Creed and the early church councils. Uh, that's Bavink's words, right? So, but there we're not talking about an alternate foundation parallel to Scripture. There we're talking about uh, the epistemic, right? The epistemic um, recapitulation of scriptural data that was done within within the concert of of early Christians and of the early church, and thus we are to some extent as individuals bound to deal with those. We cannot just because remember from the fourth century onward, and you could go earlier than that, Christians have been believing these things. And so you cannot, in the 21st century, all of a sudden, come up with something that is not in step with the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, especially when we're dealing with the doctrine of God or something like that, or Christology, and deny the Nicene tradition deny the Apostles' Creed. Um, and the reason you can is because essentially you'd be saying as an individual at that point that I'm my own creed, I'm my own council, I'm my own pope, and the whole of Christian history essentially has been wrong. All right. Um, so, uh, when, we're, when we're talking about creeds, when we're talking about confessions, we're not talking about alternate parallel authorities to scripture, as Rome would have their oral tradition situated, right? That's not what we're doing. So moving now from Roman numeral three to Roman numeral four, and I don't know how much we're actually going to be able to get through this, but this is the question of transmission. This is the question of transmission. And I'm actually kind of wrestling with whether or not to even start this, because it is a quite a bit of a longer session, or section, rather. Um... Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a little bit. When, when we get up to around the 20-minute mark, I don't want to go too far over that, maybe 25 minutes. Here we're at 8, 19 minutes. Um, the Holy Spirit inspires the great tradition, right? The Holy Spirit inspires the great tradition. The great tradition is codified in the pages of Scripture. And so Scripture is the Spirit-inspired source upon which all exposition, teaching, creeds, and confessions must rely and thus be subject unto, all right? Very important to understand that dynamic because that is the distinguishing mark between Protestants and Romanists. And on that note, let me, let's me let interact with Bavink for a little bit here because Bavink has quite a long section on the biblical teaching of tradition. And I'm not going to read that whole thing because it's, it's, it's quite long. Um... But what I will do is read a section in that overall, uh, in that overall, um, in that overall section, where Bavink I think very helpfully distinguishes uh, the Reformed view of tradition from the Roman Catholic view of tradition. Now, this is four ninety page four ninety three in the Baker Academic. Edition, Reform Dogmatics, Volume 1, Prolegomena. Uh, again, page 493 in the very first volume of 
Reform Dogmatics by Herman Bovink. He says this, The Reformation, however, adopted another position. Right? He's about to contrast the Reform position from something else. All right, from something else. And I believe, let's see, the, yeah, okay, so, hold on, I don't want to get lost here. Yeah, okay, so he says, the, Reformed, the Reformation, however, adopted another position on tradition. It did not reject all tradition as such. It was Reformation, not revolution. It did not attempt to create everything anew from the bottom up but it did try to cleanse everything from error and abuse according to the rule of God's word. For that reason, it continued to stand on the broad Christian foundation of the Apostles' Creed and the early councils. For that reason, it favored a theological science which thought through the truth of Scripture and interpreted it in, and interpreted it in the language of the present. What you're hearing Bobbing say here is very close to what Craig Carter says, or how, how Craig Carter talks about the great tradition in something like interpreting Scripture with the great tradition. He goes on, he says, The difference between Rome and the Reformation in their respective views of tradition consists in this. Okay, this is very pointed, this is very summary, it's very concise, but it's very profound. Because something, by the way, this, this difference has been brought up before, and it's been brought up in this video series, and it's been brought up in, in other formats as well. And that difference has not been, I don't think, properly observed by the critics who continue to associate language of the great tradition and so on with a Romanist understanding of tradition inaccurately so. I mean, so far left field. Here's what Boving says, and this is the distinction we've been making. The difference between Rome and the Reformation and their respective views of tradition consists in this. Rome wanted a tradition that ran on an independent parallel track alongside of Scripture, or rather, Scripture alongside of tradition. So you have two kind of parallel sources of authority. You have tradition and you have holy writ. All right. Here's what he says about the Reformation. He says, the Reformation recognizes only a tradition that is founded on and flows from Scripture. He goes on, he says, to the mind of the Reformation, Scripture was an organic principle from which the entire tradition, living on in preaching, confession, liturgy, worship, theology, devotional literature, etc., arises and is nurtured. So notice here. Bovink is talking about a tradition that flows out of Scripture. Scripture is its cause. Tradition is the effect of that cause. All right. Um, and then he talks in this, in this part that I just recently read, he alludes to the transmission of the tradition. The transmission of the tradition, which is the section we are now in. He says, to the mind of the Reformation, Scripture was an organic principle from which the entire tradition, living on in, or transmitted by, we might say, preaching, confession, liturgy, worship, theology, devotional literature, etc., arises and is nurtured. It is a pure spring of living water from which all the currents and channels of the religious life are fed and maintained. Such a tradition is grounded in Scripture itself. After Jesus completed his work, he sent forth the Holy Spirit who while adding nothing new to the revelation, still guides the church into the truth 
until it passes through all its diversity and arrives at the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Profound statement, because he's basically saying, well, if the Holy Spirit's working in the whole church, then the truth is going to be preserved in and through the whole church by the power of the Holy Spirit. In this sense, there is a good, true, and glorious tradition. It is the method by which the Holy Spirit causes the truth of Scripture to pass into the consciousness and life of the church. Scripture, after all, think about textual transmission, right? Uh, we don't have the autographs anymore. We are working with the apographs, um, right? So that's that automatic, that forces us into a traditionary understanding and a traditionary transmission. Scripture, after all, is only a means, not the goal. The goal is that, instructed by Scripture, the church will freely and independently make known the wonderful deeds of him who called it out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. The external word is the instrument, the internal word, the aim. Scripture will have reached its destination when all have been taught by the, uh, by the Lord and are filled with the Holy Spirit. So, I think those are very good ways to distinguish. He makes other key distinctions, I think, in the word tradition by itself. Uh, we could have read in a, in a former part of the series that, that is very helpful. But uh, we are out of time here. We're going to pick up next time. We're going to go ahead and go for a fourth part. We'll pick up next time um, on the Holy Spirit providential superintention and transmission of the great tradition um, when we when we return. So if this video is helpful, guys, please share it. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Thank you and God bless.